I'm Taylor. I'm Kat. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. Episode, Episode 100. 100. Which I only just realized we were supposed to say at the same time. I mean, it was never going to work, it? was it? never going to happen, let's be real. <laughs> if you've been here for the last 100 episodes, you know that. <laughs> if you've been here for the last 100 episodes, you deserve, like, a medal. A medal. Um, we said that at the same time. Yeah, if it's unscripted, we 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 can work it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like um, a hundred episodes. That's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, almost ne- like next month. It'll be two years, or is it March? Whenever I don't know. I was just gonna ask when did we start? It was Cause... either February or March, twenty twenty. I think it was February, like l- mid to late February. Hang on. There is a way we can figure this out. I mean, like, yeah, but that would be way too easy. <laughs> Google Podcasts, all this first, 19th of February, 2020. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so it's yeah. taken us two years to get to... Whatever this is. <laughs> 100, yeah. Uh good lord. Yeah. And um I can't speak for you, but I've really loved it. Yeah. Like <laughs> there's something very strange about knowing though that like we've created a hundred episodes of something, anything. Yeah. Which means that there's like knowing us, there's about one and a half hours of audio average for every episode that's out there. So there's like... I don't think it's that high for every episode. It's... No, but like, if I think if you average out some, like, the longer ones with the shorter ones, it's like... I still think an hour. Yeah, an hour. Hour, probably. Uh, And there's loads of Patreon stuff as well. There is, yeah. So like, there's like hundreds of hours of just us talking on the internet which is weird when you stop yeah. and think about it yeah like i've never been part of something that's like properly lasted this long yeah no it's super cool and like when we started out like we got you know maybe 20 20 listens a month kind of yeah. thing and i think half of those were people or at least half of those were people we knew i mean it was my mom it was just my mom but yeah i was looking when i was uploading last week's episode i was looking at our numbers and like we average like 75 listeners a day now wow which is like wow weird yeah but uh yeah it's been a wild ride and it's really like really cool that you guys are here on it with us yeah yeah i don't know hey look Look, everyone, we've gone off track. Are you surprised? If you've been here for a while, you won't be. <laughs> um, 
yeah, so because this is our hundredth episode, and that's it's <laughs> literally what we do um now, if you have been with us for a while, you already know this part, but if you're a new listener and you haven't been put off by yeah, whatever that was, <laughs> yeah, hi, welcome Wh- whatever you managed to edit that into <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's literally just us, uh, saying our names in the name of the show. That's it. (laughs) That's all that's left. (laughs) And that's the end of the episode. Okay, goodbye, everyone. Thank you for showing up. Um, but yeah, hi. If this is your first episode, yeah, not a bad choice, probably. Yeah. Um, because... This is the refined version. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get to that. (laughs) So, every ten episodes, starting from... Episode 10 of the show, we cover a Scottish case. Uh, because despite the fact that neither of us are from Scotland, we did meet in Scotland and we took our name, as you may or may not know, from a series of famous or infamous, uh, Victorian era Glaswegian crimes. <laughs> Ye- what? What's going on over there? <laughs> My wires are all tangled up and they were starting to like pull on each other. Um, so I'm detangling and I'm still in a knot. I see that. So so far this tracks for episode 100. <laughs> Not gonna lie. Uh, um, but yeah, so we take our name from Glasgow Square Mile of Murder. Go figure, right? If you want to learn about those cases, you should listen to episodes 10, 20, 30, and 40, because that's when we cover them. And so this is a 10. It's a 10 times 10. It's it's 100. So, nope. Yes. Yeah? Yeah. Math? What? <laughs> Who? You being the one to do maths on this this podcast is... is what? The... Unheard of. Episode 100, breaking all kinds of rules. Unrecommended. It's not, it's not a thing I recommend that I do <laughs> often. Anyway, yeah, so this is one of those, and we're going to look at a Scottish case. And it is, in fact, a pretty special Scottish case. Um, because, hey, it has been, as we've hinted over the last few weeks, hotly requested. And I hope that the way I said that really transferred well to oh, definitely. the recording. Like, I knew exactly Hotly. what you meant. Yes. Um, like, 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 clearly two whole people. Yeah. I think there's probably been more than two over the span of uh, two years. Probably. But this case has the unenviable status of being Police Scotland's longest running investigation at almost 54 years to date. Uh, Over a thousand suspects have been investigated and cleared by police. World-renowned criminologists have staked their reputation on particular suspects. And true crime fans and armchair detectives all have their own theories and opinions on it. Yeah, so, episode 100, we're doing it. We're going to talk about the murders of Patricia Docker, Jemima McDonald, and Helen Puddock, 
better known as the Bible John murders. Yep. Cue the dramatic music. That's it. That, that's all. That's all we have the budget for. Just that little bit. First of all, let us set the scene because Glasgow of the past decade that Taylor and I know is vastly different to the Glasgow of the 1960s and the 1970s, 80s, and even the 90s. Uh, and it was definitely more no mean, city, no mean city than our dear green place. If you don't get the reference, there are two names for Glasgow yeah. that have sprung up in the last century. Yeah. Uh, traditional heavy industries such as shipbuilding were in decline, and as such, the city's economy declined slash nosedived as well. Unemployment was high, as was welfare dependency, and alongside it, all the markers of urban poverty, such as poor health, alcohol and drug addiction, and crime. It was the same story for many industrial towns and cities all across the UK and even Europe. Um, but another aspect that was much the same across the UK in the 1960s was the dance hall. In the years before the discotheque and the nightclub, we, or our parents' generations and grandparents' generations, at least, had the dance hall, which was a place where you'd go for a drink, a dance, and perhaps meet somebody of the opposite sex. And Glasgow was famous for its dance halls back in the day. Not only were these venues a place to socialise and potentially meet someone, they were also an escape from the deprivation experienced across Glasgow, according to a recent documentary, at least. Uh, but as more and more women entered the workplace in the 1970s, pubs became more welcoming and accepting of women, dance halls began to die out, although some have survived as concert and event spaces. But by and large, there's not many left. And one of the ones that did survive is now is the now world-famous Barrowland Ballroom. Yeah. With its foam-lined sprung floors, the Barrowlands has become known as one of the best concert and live music venues in the world. Playing there is on the bucket list of performers the world over. I just realised I missed out anything about the neon out front. Oh yeah. It has a killer has a killer sign that's very sixties and very iconic. Yeah. It's I love it. I used to walk past it quite often yeah. when I lived in Deniston. And I used to love walking past it in the day and seeing it not yeah. lit up because I was like, it is just a building and then at night when it's all lit up, it's just so fantastical. Yeah. It's something else, yeah. Totally. Back in the 1960s, it was one of the many dance halls in Glasgow, although it did have a slightly different reputation at the time. Uh, although the dance halls were one of the few places where men and women mixed socially, and many couples did meet at the dance halls, the Barrowlands did have a bit of a reputation for being the place you went if you wanted more than just a drink and a dance. It reportedly wasn't unusual for people to be seen slipping off their wedding rings as they stepped into the building. Uh, Thursday nights were for the over-25s and were known affectionately as grab-a-granny night. Rude. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, if, if 
25 is granny. What the hell does that make us? Crypt keeper? <laughs> I would love that job. <laughs> Not the point. Not the point. <laughs> oh, Christ. Um, so on February 22nd, 1969, 25-year-old Patricia Docker, a nurse and recently separated mother of one, left her son Alex with her parents at their home in the Battlefields area of Glasgow's south side. Patricia told her parents she was going to the Majestic Dance Hall, also known as the Magic Stick, in the city centre. And if you... That doesn't work unless you say it with a Glaswegian accent when you think about it, does it? Yeah, no. But I'm so, not going to try to... Oh, I'm not going to try, but I think <laughs> just to give a bit of context, you have to imagine, like, Billy Connolly or someone saying it. Yeah, so at some point that night, she either changed her mind or moved on from the Majestic and ended up at the Barrylands on London Road, just east of the city centre. When Patricia didn't return to her parents' home that night, they simply assumed that she had decided to stay the night with a friend and that she would return the next day. Which is fair, you know, she's 25. It was a different time, there weren't any, you know, mobile phones, it wasn't an immediate cause for concern, and you didn't automatically think of foul play when somebody didn't come home. Uh, but all of that sort of lack of concern, laissez-faire, changed the following morning. Uh, the next morning, the body of a young woman was found in Carmichael Lane by local man Maurice Good Goodman, just a few hundred yards from where Patricia and her parents lived on Langside Place. Maurice Goodman lived on nearby Carmichael Place, but kept his car in one of the gar- uh, in one of the garages on Carmichael Lane. He rushed home and called the police, and luckily there were two officers in the area who arrived to begin their investigation. As Patricia was a nurse in a local hospital, paramedics recognised her when they collected the body from Carmichael Lane, and she was formally identified by her father, John Wilson, the following day. Patricia had been strangled to death with a strong ligature, most likely a belt, but she also showed evidence of blunt force trauma to the head, face and upper body. Her handbag and some of her clothes were missing from the scene, although her, her handbag would later be recovered from the nearby white cart water. Her yellow woolen dress and grey duffel coat have never been recovered. So investigators theorised that her attacker grabbed Patricia as she left the barrel and ballroom, punched her repeatedly in a in an attempt to subdue her, before sexually assaulting her and dumping her body near her home in the city's south side. However, pathologists from the University of Glasgow Medical School concluded that there was no clear evidence of sexual assault. Now, this is not to say that she wasn't sexually assaulted, but the pathologists just couldn't confirm beyond doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, police carried out door-to-door inquiries in the area and found a woman who recalled hearing a female scream, leave me alone, the previous evening, but that was it. So Patricia had recently separated from her husband, Alex Docker, who was a corporal in the RAF and stationed in Digby, Lincolnshire. Uh, Alex Docker was initially, very briefly, considered as a suspect in his estranged wife's murder, but was soon cleared um, because he had never left the base on February 22nd. And Lincolnshire's a long way from Glasgow. Yeah. 
Other than Alex Docker, the police had no suspects for Patricia's murder, but began to theorize that he was either someone Patricia knew and had arranged to meet at the Barrelands, or someone she had met that night and that he had offered to walk her home. Uh, when they neared Patricia's home, the man dragged her into Carmichael Lane, assaulted her, and then strangled her. The police also found a used sanitary pad near Patricia's body and believed that Patricia had refused sex uh, as she was on her period, and her companion had beaten and murdered her for refusing his advances. Now, another theory, another theory, is that she wanted sex, but the man was so disgusted by the fact that she was on her period that he murdered her. You know, it's so much better. Just pretty ridiculous. Um, and now, as bizarre as that does sound, do keep it in mind because it will become important later. Uh, the police continued to investigate, but 18 months later, they'd made little progress finding Patricia's, Patricia's killer. And then he struck again. So on August 16th, 1969, Jemima McDonald, a 32-year-old single mother of three, chose to spend her Saturday night dancing at the Barrowlands. Jemima was a regular of the Barrowlands on a Saturday night. She lived in Bridge Bridgeton, which is sometimes pronounced Brickton. Yeah. Bridgeton is literally minutes away from the Barrowlands. Yeah. Jemima had left her three children with her sister Margaret, who lived in the same tenement building as them. Now, usually she went dancing with her sister, but on this particular night, Margaret did not go. So Jemima went by herself. In the early hours of August 17th, Jemima was seen by numerous individuals in the company of a young, well-dressed man, aged between 25 and 35, between 6 foot and 6 foot 2 tall, with short, dark brown hair. According to witnesses, he spoke with a distinctive Glaswegian accent, and occasionally inserted brief biblical quotations into conversation. Jemima left with the unknown gentleman, and the pair were last seen around one o'clock that morning walking through Bridgeton. I'm sorry, but like, is there anything less sexy than occasionally inserting Bible quotes into conversation? <laughs> I don't know. I think we're going to have to ask some people who are um, more religious than us. Just like, also just like, just, it's just weird. Like, I understand talking about religion in a social setting. I can yeah. conceptualize that. But just like dropping a, you know, Psalms 23, just <laughs> in the middle of like, talking about your work week. I yeah. don't even know if that's a thing, by the way, because I've never read the Bible and I've never been to church because I'm a filthy, filthy heathen. So... But still, just fucking weird. Yeah, I also find it very strange. But again, I'm a, you know, you can be a heathen, I'll be a heretic. There you go. Got all our bases covered. Yeah, so, but I don't think it's normal. No. When, uh, when Jemima didn't come to collect her children on the Sunday morning, Margaret became increasingly worried. So she went out in Bridgeton to look for her. 
While she was out and about later that morning, Margaret overheard some local children talking about the body in the tenement. So the local children supposedly found a dead body in a derelict tenement building just a few doors down from where the sisters lived. Uh, by Monday morning, Margaret was reported reportedly frantic that Jemima had still not come home, had still not come home, and fearing for her sister's safety, she decided to visit the abandoned tenement building where the local children had allegedly found a body. Inside, she found the badly beaten body of her sister. Unlike Patricia, uh, Jemima was found fully clothed, with the exception of her stockings and shoes which were placed beside her, although her clothing was torn. The postmortem revealed that she had been sexually assaulted and beaten before being strangled with one of her own stockings. Like Patricia, Jemima had also been on her period when she was murdered. Uh, police began to draw comparisons between Jemima and Patricia's murders. However, initially, at least, police didn't consider the murders to be the work of the same perpetrator. Obviously. No, I mean, why would you think that? Well, just like, oh, look, all this stuff's the same, but it must not be the same. Um, the investigation into Jemima's murder was the first time that a composite drawing used in a Scottish murder investigation was given to the press to circulate. The now famous drawing of the suspect, based on the man witnesses saw uh, with Jemima at the Barrelands, was circulated across the country via newspapers and television. Um, so it was a documentary uh, on... Either last month or it might be November, back end of 2021, on the BBC called The Hunt for Bible John. Mm -hmm. And there's various different contributors to it. And one of them says that basically these murders weren't really widely reported on because the culture of violence was just such as it was in Glasgow in the late 60s was that a single mother being murdered after a yeah. night at the dancing just didn't make the news. Yeah. Glasgow was a very dangerous yeah. place to live. You know, there was a lot of gang activity. There was, yeah, there was just a lot of crime. And yeah. so, like, it's easy to see how, not that it's... It should have happened this way, but it's easy to see how these events could get lost in all that. Yeah, and if there's no pressure from the... If the press aren't reporting it, there's less pressure on the police to solve it. Yeah. Following uh, the murder of Jemima MacDonald, undercover police officers performed discreet surveillance at the Barrowland Ballroom in an effort to identify the suspect. But it was kind of an open secret. And everyone knew there were undercover officers at the venue. So they weren't really that discreet. <laughs> no. So the surveillance at the Barland Ballroom would only last until October 1969, due to the operation both failing to produce any suspects and being blamed by the proprietors for a sharp decrease in attendance. I, I, can, I can see that happening, yep. Yeah. But just days after the police undercover operation was terminated, 
the killer would strike again. On October 30th, Helen Puttock and her sister Jean Langford went to the Barrowlands for a night of dancing. And the following morning, the body of 29-year-old Helen would be found behind the tenement building near where she lived in Scotston, West Glasgow. Now, both Helen and Jean were married, and a lot has been made of this because of the Barrowlands and its reputation back in the day. But Jean Langford always maintained that their husbands didn't have a problem with them going out, you know, to the dance halls because they were just going to have a drink and a dance and enjoy themselves. Mm-hmm. Nothing more. Just a night out. Which, like, if you think about it today... That's normal. Yeah. Like, people in relationships or people who are married still go out with friends to have fun at night. Like, yeah. It's... It's not unheard of. No. And I guess maybe this is a, a, like, too modern a perspective on things. But, like, people had friends. Even in the 60s. Even in the 1660s. People had friends. Yeah. (laughs) Because people are people. And so, like, I think we get caught up sometimes in that, like, oh, like, cultural history of, like, well... You know, back in the 60s, everyone only, you know, ever talked to their their husband and their children and their cat. And, like, it's like, no. No. That's just not what happened. So, anyway, yeah, I'll step down off my <laughs> soapbox for but, some reason. <laughs> I well, no, really... but you are right, because it was seen as, like, like, men went to the pub. Men socialized outside of the home, whereas women, they would socialize yeah at the hairdressers or they would all go around to someone's flat or you know in like the close in a tenement they'd all be sat amongst you know up and down the steps yeah but yeah but no like and i think also you know we talked about it a little bit before but like this is kind of that time period where the social structures of society were changing yeah like women were going to pubs and meeting people outside of the house that you know they weren't married to and all this shit so like yeah it is it's a really interesting time because uh, like especially this is the late 60s so like obviously the late 60s is different everywhere like yeah this is not Glasgow in 1969 is not the same as like San Francisco in 1969. Oh, hell no. But like the world was fucking changing. Yeah. And like, so like the ball is rolling already. I don't know where I'm going with this. That's it. Just, yeah. Oh, I was excited. I wanted to know where you were were going. (laughs) The ball is, is rolling and it just keeps rolling. And I don't know uh, where, where it goes. It rolled into the Clyde, I think. I think it did. I think you're right. Uh, That night, Helen and Jean met two men, both called John, and had a couple of drinks with said men. One of them, we will call John A, partnered with Jean and told the sisters that he was a roofer who lived in Castle Milk, which is a neighborhood in southwest Glasgow. The second man, who we'll call John B, partnered with Helen and was a lot more reserved than his friend, and he didn't give many details about his life. 
Um, at the end of the night, the group left the Barrelands and took the short walk to Glasgow Cross, where John A. boarded a night bus and went home. Helen, Jean, and John B. all shared a taxi back to West Glasgow. Uh, the taxi dropped Jean off outside her home in Knightswood, which was only a couple miles from where her sister lived, and the taxi continued on with Helen and John B. towards Scotston. The following morning, Helen's body was found by a passing dog walker. Uh, she was propped up against a drain pipe in her own backyard on Earl Street. Like Patricia and Jemima, she had extensive blunt force trauma to her face and upper body, and she had been as- she had been sexually assaulted, then strangled using one of her stockings. Her handbag was missing from the scene, but its contents had been scattered around the backyard, and she had also been on her period when she was murdered. Unlike the first two victims, in Helen's case, there was a witness who had spent considerable time with the perpetrator, her sister Jean. Now, Jean would tell the authorities that John B., who rode in the taxi with them, was aged between 25 and 30. He was approximately 5 foot 10. He was slim, with reddish hair, and he was well-dressed. Jean also said that he had quoted Bible passages throughout the night, and that he had told them he believed the Barrowlands to be a, quote, adulterous den of iniquity, and voiced his disgust at married women, married women visiting such places. Yet he himself visited this adulterous den of iniquity and spent the night dancing with a married woman who had no intention of, you know, going home with him. She was just sharing a taxi so she could get home and it could take him home after that. I don't know. Den of iniquity. Uh, The press quickly picked up on this aspect of the killer's personality and nicknamed him Bible John. So, as we said before, uh, the press weren't that interested in Patricia and Jemima's murders because violence was just so commonplace in Glasgow. And... Uh, According to the documentary The Hunt for Bible John, in 1968, Glasgow had the highest murder rate in Europe, a title that it still had less than 20 years ago. Yeah. Actually, I think it was about 15 years ago. It was was more I think it was about 2007, 2008 when it finally, they finally started to get a handle on it. Yeah. So, a woman murdered after a night out was not even newsworthy. Very sadly. Um, Gene also told investigators that he had been a teetotaler, wasn't drinking, and he had indicated and he had indicated that he was neither a Catholic nor a Protestant after she had asked him if he supported Celtic or Rangers. Um, now, we do not have time to go into Glasgow's history of religious divide but i don't uh, think we could do it even if we had the time wouldn't i would not touch it with a 10 foot pole um connected to a 200 foot pole yeah uh let's just say that it's bloody and even as recently as the 1960s many neighborhoods were still either majority catholic or majority protestant so you pretty much guess someone's religious affiliation pretty accurately based on where they lived. Not as much now, although some places 
You can. Um, so there wasn't really any indication about where this killer could have lived um, if he was neither Protestant or Catholic. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a, a similar connection with football clubs. Celtic is associated with Catholics and Rangers is associated with Protestants. The police appealed for witnesses and both a bus driver and conductor reported seeing a man matching the description that Jean gave getting on their night bus in the Scottsdale area at approximately 2 a.m. on October 31st. They described the man as being in a notably disheveled state um, with a vivid red mark on his cheek just beneath one eye. The driver and conductor last saw the man when he left their bus heading towards the public ferry to cross the River Clyde to get to the south side of the city. He had his own card. He could use the ferry. Um, uh, the police had denied a link between Jemima and Patricia's murders, but after Helen's murder, they finally admitted that they believed the three were linked. Although at this point, it was difficult to deny the similarities of the three murders. Uh, a new composite was created and distributed across Scotland. Bible John's haircut was described as unusually short, so the composite was distributed to 450 hairdressers across Glasgow, but this turned up nothing. Dentists across Glasgow were also contacted to compare dental records with a bite mark on Helen Puddock's body, but again, it turned up nothing. Uh, the sketch was also distributed to military bases across the UK, but brought up no leads. I'm just going to say, distributing it to 450 hairdressers, A, very smart. B, that's just like one city block in Glasgow. Really? I don't... I was shocked when it, like, 450, I was like, there's that many in Glasgow? There's a hairdresser on every street corner in Glasgow. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there are so not. many... <laughs> So I've got a few numbers for you regarding the case. In the first year following Helen's murder, more than 100, 100 detectives would be assigned to the case full-time. Over 50,000 witness statements were made. God. 5,000 potential suspects were interviewed. And Jean would attend more than 300 identity parades. So many men in central Scotland, were reported to the police as looking like Bible John, that after they were, you know, interviewed, investigated, and cleared, they were issued with a card saying, I am not Bible John. Such was the culture of suspicion at the time. 50,000 witness statements. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Following the death of Helen Puttock, there were no more murders, in Scotland, or indeed the rest of the UK, uh, to be attributed to Bible John. So with that, we shall look at some of the main suspects. Starting with a Mr John White. Now, he was the favoured suspect of Les Brown, a former Detective Chief Inspector with Strathclyde, Strathclyde Police, now known as Police Scotland. Uh, but he was dismissed as his teeth did not match the bite mark on Helen's body. Although he was said to closely resemble the composite drawing based on Jean Langford's statement of the man who shared her and Helen's taxi. 
John White was believed to be a false name and he gave a false address in the Garbles, which is an area south of the River Clyde, to police when he was arrested. Um, however, Les Brown wrote a book about the Bible John murders and after its publication in 2005, John White actually came forward and offered a DNA sample which was compared to DNA recovered from uh, Helen Puttock's stockings. Uh, and after this, he was eliminated as a suspect. There you go. But he had also been arrested uh, outside the Barrowlands following another incident, uh, I think it was a fight, and he'd been taken to hospital to be treated and absconded as soon as he was uncuffed. But when he got to the hospital, he gave the same name and, and address. Like, Oh, yeah. So, who knows what his real name was. But, yeah, he came forward... DNA testing eliminated him. There you go. The second suspect we're going to look at is John Irvine McGuinness. Uh, McGuinness had served in the Scots Guard and was the cousin of one of the original suspects in the murders. Uh, McGuinness died by suicide in 1980 at the age of 41, so he would have been in his late 20s at the time of the murders. And in 1996, his body was exhumed from a graveyard in South Lanarkshire. A DNA sample was taken from the body. Uh, the samples didn't match. And in late 1996, the Crown declared that John McGuinness had had no part in the Bible John murders, and he was formally cleared of any involvement due to insufficient evidence. Our third suspect is an unknown police officer, and it's mostly the work of former police officer Paul Harrison who believes that a member of the Strathclyde police force was identified by police chief Joe Beattie and then quickly pensioned off and moved to a small cottage in rural Scotland. <laughs> Paul Harrison was one of the first UK officers to train with the FBI on uh, murderers' prof like psychological profiles and he said Beattie was a man of huge integrity. It shattered him to believe the killer was one of his own. Uh, he also goes on to say that once the most senior officers in Strathclyde Police discovered that Joe Beattie was investigating one of their own, he was ordered to shut down the investigation and not speak of it to anyone. Because nothing screams innocence. Like your bosses, you know, the most powerful law enforcement officers in the city, <laughs> telling your colleagues in no uncertain terms to shut down an investigation into you and never, never look at it again. Yeah. Which just screams innocence. It's, uh, it's fine. Uh, now, since retiring from the police service, Paul Harrison has taken it upon himself to prove his former colleague's theory. He believes that he has identified the officer who BD was investigating, uh, who was pensioned off very shortly after Helen's Helen Puttick's death on health grounds, and has even identified his home in the Highlands. Uh, this suspect is still alive, which is probably why we don't know his name, uh, you know, because of libel and slander laws and all that fun stuff. Mm -hmm. So once he does die, um, we're probably more likely to find out who he was. Yeah. Or is, currently. Not only does Paul Harrison believe that a former colleague is Bible John, 
he also claims that he may have continued to kill in other places in the years following Helen Puddick's death. Harrison also says that the Bible John case and the possibility that he could have killed again haunted Joe Beatty until his death in the late 90s. Harrison claims that Jean Langford had identified the man who shared their taxi multiple times during her many trips to the Marine Police Station in Partick to attend identity parades, but he wasn't in the parades. He was in police uniform. Harrison adds that since beginning his investigation, he's been contacted by former bouncers from the Barrelands and other dance halls in the city who all tell a similar story. A well-dressed man who matched the composite drawing of Bible John starting fights outside of the venues, and when the bouncers tried to intervene, he would flash his warrant card and tell them to back off. Uh, so this is fringe theory time. Need a little, like, spooky sound effect, like. Uh, so, one suspect who has been, you know, suggested as possibly being Bible John is convicted serial killer Angus Sinclair. Now, if you listen to our episode on Angus Sinclair way back in the beginning of this podcast, episode 7, you'll know that we briefly mentioned him in relation to the Bible John murders in that episode and sort of know about his traits as a killer. Now, this is very, very much a fringe theory. So the main things that link Sinclair to the murders are that he was in Glasgow at the time. He was already convicted of the murder of Catherine Rehill. He was a prolific rapist and all of his murder victims were raped and or sexually assaulted in some way. And he left his victims out in the open for anyone to find. His known victims and many of his suspected victims were strangled using items of their own clothing, including tights and stockings. Mm -hmm. However, Sinclair was a very short man much shorter than the 5 foot 11 described by Jean, and he doesn't resemble the composite drawing in any way. He did live in Bridgeton at one point, which is the area that Jemima MacDonald lived in, and is very close to the Barrowlands. And he killed uh, Mary Gallagher in Van Hill, which isn't very far from the Barrowlands, I think two or three miles. Uh, so we know he operated in Glasgow's East End, but it still feels like very much clutching at straws. Yeah. I, and we've talked about this a lot before, as a society, we don't like the idea that there are people out there who've committed crimes and not been caught. Yeah. So when a serial killer is caught, big operations are set up to try and link, see if they try and link or see if they have committed any other crimes elsewhere in the country mm -hmm. and obviously that's important but part of the reason like part of the psychological reason for this apparently is because because we hate the idea of like murderers walking around not paying for their crimes we try and link unsolved murders to convicted killers because yeah. we don't like them not being solved we like the idea of them being tied up and the killer being in prison. Yeah, you want to know that the the monster is already behind bars. Yeah. That you're safe. I don't think it's him. But I like the idea Yeah, that it's someone who's already locked up. Yeah. Um, 
It is also believed that Sinclair killed many more than the three girls he was convicted of murdering. Sorry, four girls. He was convicted of murdering, but he died almost two years ago now. So if it was him, justice will not be had, sadly. Or at least a conviction will not be had. No. And certainly not a confession. <laughs> no. Uh, now, on to our final suspect. And uh, you all have probably been waiting for this one, if you know anything about this case. This is a suspect that's favored by many true crime fans, many armchair detectives, and even real-life detective and renowned criminologist David Wilson. Uh, we have come to convicted rapist and serial killer Peter Tobin. Uh, now, if you don't know about Peter Tobin, you could go back and listen to our episode on him, which is episode three. Fair warning. It was an early one. It was an early episode. We had not hit our, like, sweet spot. Stride. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, so in that episode, we didn't really talk about Tobin in relation to the Bible John murders, but it does give you an insight into his criminal activities in general and his predatory nature and just all around scum of the earth. Yeah, garbage humanness. Peter Tobin was born in 1946 in Renfrewshire near Glasgow, and in recent years, renowned criminologist David Wilson has said he would stake his professional reputation on Tobin being Bible John. Tobin has been convicted of three murders, multiple, multiple sexual assaults, and all three of his wives have said that their marriages were incredibly violent as well as emotionally abusive. Tobin was well known to the local authorities, having been sent to an approved school at the age of seven, which is like juvie. Yeah. And uh, has been in and out of prison his entire life. 75-year-old Tobin is currently in HMP Edinburgh, serving a whole-of-life tariff for the murders of Angelica Kluke in 2006 and Dinah McNichol and Vicki Hamilton in 1991. Following his conviction for the murder of Angelica Kluke in 2007, DSI David Swindle opened Operation Anagram, a nationwide operation which involved every police force in the country to uncover Tobin's crimes, uh, because many believed he had not begun killing at the age of 59. Go figure. Yeah. Uh, now, as well as leading police to the bodies of Dynamic Nickel and Vicki Hamilton, Operation Anagram uncovered more details of Tobin's movements over the years. So, we've talked about this between us quite a few times before, often in the pub, over food. Neither of us are really convinced that Tobin is Bible John. Mm -hmm. uh, despite the fact he does seem to be, you know, the favourite, for lack of a better word. Uh, you know, favourite suspects amongst law enforcement professionals and armchair detectives alike. But even though we aren't convinced of Tobin's guilt, we're going to do our best to go through all the evidence that points towards him. So, Peter Tobin was known to have at least 40 aliases, including Peter Wilson, James Kelly, Paul Semple, John Tobin, Peter Proben and Pat McLaughlin. Now, following the murder of third victim Helen Puttock, her sister Jean said that uh, in the Barrowlands, John had given his name as John Templeton or something similar. 
Now, because Tobin was known to use the name John and had used the surname Semple in the past, this had led many to consider Tobin as a suspect, partly because, you know, Temple, Semple, John, it's all very similar. You're going to run out of aliases eventually. <laughs> and while I can see how people would make that connection, the Barrelins is literally around the corner from Templeton's, which is an old textile and carpet factory now converted into offices and flats, which where I used to work at one point. It is a beautiful old building. It's famous. It's like mm-hmm. the uh, the exterior is like reminiscent of the is it the dog dog's palace dog's palace in Venice or something. That is not how you pronounce it. <laughs> it's like I don't know what you're do, talking do, about. Do, it's like D O G E or something. Hold on. Oh yeah, like the Doge. Palace? Uh, no, I'm literally on Google Translate. Doja. Doja's Doja. Palace. Yeah. It's gorgeous. It's all like tile and mm. uh, yeah. brick and stone and stuff. Yeah. Doja's Palace. Yeah. According to the Google Translate lady. Not the Dogger's Palace. Mm, that's something really different. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um... And it is a really famous landmark of Glasgow. Yeah. Personally, in my opinion, I would think that like anyone familiar with this area of the city would know about Templetons. So if you wanted to like quickly just think of a fake name, Temple, Templetons, it's not much of a stretch. Yeah. And also just like, of course, someone's going to use the alias John. It's literally like the alias name, yeah. And I, uh, I do not think that Bible John's real name was John. So no, I don't. Like, just as Peter Tobin had all kinds of fun with names, so too could literally anybody else. Yeah. So yeah. And also, how many of us have been on nights out where we've given people fake names? Yeah. Like, I have done it so many times just to get people to leave me alone. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it's just kind of, mm. I don't know. I don't, And it's it just seems like a very, like, I want this to be a connection and therefore it is a connection. And people yeah. have then jumped on it over the years. Yeah. Uh, however, there are also a number of aspects uh, of Peter Tobin's, Tobin's criminology that point away from him being Bible John. Tobin buried his known victims, whereas Patricia, Jemima, and Helen were all left out in the open. And as Kat has written, to quote the TV show Whitechapel, A serial killer does not emerge fully formed. He too must learn his craft. Which is fair. Yeah. Point being, Tobin's known victims were killed in 1991 and 2006, more than 20 years after the Bible John murders. So it is possible that, you know, he changed his MO during this 20-year period. Another thing that casts doubt on Tobin's guilt is the question over whether or not he was actually in Glasgow when the murders happened. Kind. 
kind of a really important factor when determining whether or not someone is a serial killer. Yeah, it's just like a minor detail. Or, you know, well, we know he's a serial killer. Guilty of these murders. Yeah. (laughs) Whether or not he's this serial killer. Um, Peter Tobin was living in Brighton when the Bible John murders occurred. Uh, His first wife is very adamant in her claims that despite all of the things Tobin did to her and all the crimes he has been convicted of, and the many more that he is suspected of committing, that he is not Bible John. Um, and it's also important to point out that Tobin repeatedly beat and sexually assaulted his first wife at knife point and then stabbed her in the stomach and left her to bleed out. And so she's spoken about him many times in interviews, and there's not a lot of uh, loyalty there, which yeah. yes, there shouldn't be. Most damning of all. <laughs> Following the merger of Angelica Kluke during uh, Operation Anagram, it was investigated whether or not Tobin could have been Bible John. And David Swindle says in the recent BBC documentary, The Hunt for Bible John, that there was no link whatsoever between Tobin and Bible John. Now, according to David Swindle, Tobin can be placed in Brighton at the time of the murders and his DNA was tested against a sample found on Helen Puttock's body uh, at the time of the murders and his DNA didn't match. And David Swindle also pointed out that the investigation gathered photos of Tobin throughout his life and the photos from the late 1960s do not match the sketches, composites or photo fits in any way. (laughs) So following Operation Anagram and obvious DNA testing, Tobin was actually eliminated as a suspect. Now recently, Tobin who, as we said, is now 75 and in reportedly in quite bad health, mm-hmm. said that he has murdered many more women than he has been convicted of, but he has refused to provide any more information to the police. And in our episode, we do talk uh, on him way back, episode three, we do talk a bit about some of the murders he's been accused of. And there's a... A documentary uh, investigative type program on Netflix called Investigator, a, Brit- a very British crime story or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. We'll put the link in the episode description. That goes into a lot of like the crimes he's been accused of. Yeah. But not proven. I'm the same with Angus Sinclair as well because it links up with both of them in Glasgow. Um. But yeah, so he has. He has admitted that he's murdered a lot more women than he's been convicted of, but he has also said in police interviews that he just couldn't give a fuck about the victims, their families, and whether or not they get closure. Great. So he has no intention of of confessing. However, he has consistently denied being Bible John, even last year when he, you know, said, no, I've killed more than I've been convicted of, but, you know, come and prove it. Mm-hmm. He still said he is not Bible John. So, that is the unsolved case of Bible John, and just a tiny fraction of the more than 1,000 suspects. Uh, anything to add? I have many thoughts. 
Yeah, I don't think it was Peter Tobin. I don't think it was Angus Sinclair. I think it's someone who hasn't been identified unless I am not opposed to the idea that it's someone who is in the um, Strathclyde police force. Yeah. The only thing that I struggle with there is that, like, if, like, why wouldn't Gene Langford have, like, come forward and identified him at some point? Yeah. Well, I suppose at the same time, it's like, we don't know what pressure's put on her, was put on well, her yeah. by the police and things like that. And she, yeah. she died, I think, 2010. Yeah. So... You know, it's e- it's easy for us to say now, oh, well, she could have at some point in later years come out and said the sign of the book. We don't know what the culture was. Well, yeah, and like, and to be fair, like, if you're constantly in the police station, interfacing with police, doing, you know, uh, lineups and identification stuff, like, and this guy is there... That's going to be very intimidating. Yeah. Um, But yeah. So, like, I do think that that's definitely a possibility. Especially with the whole um, local uh, bouncers and people who worked at some of these venues saying, oh, yeah, there was a guy who was actually a cop who would start fights outside of the dance halls and stuff. I think and this has been uh sort of theorized before that bible john was actually a prolific rapist yeah and just the fact that the three of them were all in their period when they were murdered i think it's just like he was a prolific rapist and they those three being on their period whatever like he used that as his justification to kill them and it just so and you know, but I think he was probably a prolific rapist. And it was just the fact that they were the only three women he ever tried to rape who were on their periods. Or it, I think, it could also just be that like these were, especially because it's like a compressed period of time. If you think about if he's a a long term like serial rapist. Mm. Like, it could just be that these three encounters just went that step further. Yeah. For whatever reason. Like, you know, so- something about his psychology at that time. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, because so much was made of, like, them all menstruating at the time of their murders. Like... Could he have been a, just a serial rapist? And if the you know if period blood is so important, but that's the thing. I don't think it is important. I think the cops thought it was important because it was the late sixties and men are idiots. Like, and ju- also, criminal profiling was very, was a very new thing. Yeah. Like, who's to say that, like, that's, oh, that's the thing that set him off. Well, how the fuck Mm. do you know that? You weren't there. Like, (laughs) it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. There is another theory about suspect. Uh, Let me just pull it up on the Wikipedia page about Bible John. And this was 
So this is all taken from David Wilson's book. Um, the Lost British Serial Killer Closing the Case on Peter Tobin and Bible John. Mm-hmm. According to Wikipedia, so in the years after the Bible John killings, a number of women came forward to claim they had been sexually assaulted after an evening at the Barrowlands. One of these women, uh, Hannah Martin, claimed that she had been sexually assaulted and raped by Bible John and subsequently gave birth to his child at the Glasgow Royal Maternity Hospital in January 1970. A daughter who she initially named Isabel. According to Hannah Martin, in April 1969, she'd gone to the Rowland, she'd left the dance hall in the company of a tall man with whom she had had sex. She then accepted his offer of a lift home. However, during the drive, his sexual demeanour became more aggressive and she was terrified that she may be attacked and ended up vomiting in his car. He then bundled her out of the car, drove off and left her standing on the pavement. Okay, so that's not clear because it's saying that she was sexually assaulted, but it then describes it as being sex. Sex and rape are not the same thing. No. But by that retelling, there is a child who would be the link. Yeah. Uh, And, I mean, that account is remarkably similar to the accounts of the known Bible John victims. Yeah, a tall man left the dance hall. Became aggressive and violent, yeah. Yeah, so that is another theory that he was, you know, some kind of prolific serial rapist. Yeah completely detached from anything that we've said but this case has actually been called scotland's jack the ripper Hmm. quite a few times Mm -hmm. i disagree not just because i'm contrary (laughs) um but there is still a slim chance that this case could get solved yeah it is a very slim chance and i think it's very unlikely but the possibility is still there like, nobody alive today knew the canonical five, you mm-hmm. know, Jack the Ripper's five victims, but there are still people alive who knew Patricia, Jemima, and Helen. Mm-hmm. And there is a, still a chance to get justice for them, for their loved ones, mm-hmm. or closure at the very least, if not justice. Um, But if that doesn't happen, I think it will just turn into another Jack the Ripper situation. And it'll be, the victims will be forgotten and it'll all become about who was he. Yeah. Well, and I think the, the, the big thing here is that the big difference is that obviously in the, what, 80 years? 1888. Yeah. So like, 80 years between the cases, more or less. Mm. There was a lot of development in the world of police investigation. Yeah. Like, and as there has been in the last 50 plus years. Um, But what is really interesting about the Bible John case is that they do have 
a DNA profile. Yes. And, and they are, you know, up to a certain point in recent memory, like still actively checking that DNA against other people who come up. So, yeah, I do think that that is, if this case is going to be solved, it's going to be solved with DNA. Now, what that looks like, if it looks like a, you know, a familial DNA, Golden State Killer, a Bear Creek, Bear Brook. Bear Bro- I was thinking, where's Bear Creek? <laughs> like Bear Creek is a ski hill I used to go to as a kid. Um, Bear Brook uh, yeah. kind of thing. Then that's, I mean, or whether it's just like someone finally goes to Hannah Martin's daughter and is like, Will you take a DNA test to see if, you know, whatever. So, but like, that is a very standout thing that this case has that Jack the Ripper and his victims obviously do not have. Yeah. And like the double helix was only discovered. Well, like they've known about the concept of DNA for like well over 150 years, 160 years. Yeah. But, like, the double helix and our understanding of it just wasn't sufficient back in the time of Jack the Ripper. They wouldn't have no. necessarily had any idea what DNA was or how you could... Preserve it or collect it or anything. Yeah. And, what? I mean, to be fair, like, <laughs> didn't really have practices in place for that in the 60s. But No. Well, and like that I mean that's that's like the moral of the story in the Angus Sinclair case, isn't it? That like Yeah. Because that one guy in the lab was like spent his entire career taking for- care of this evidence for when the science was there. Yeah. Cuz by the 1960s they did know they did know the potential. Yeah. And they knew eventually they would you know, I say they as in like sort of scientists knew yeah. eventually that this science would be developed and it would be, you know, gen- the genetic fingerprinting they called it first. Yeah, something like that. That one day that would be developed and usable. Like it was known in the 60s. Yeah. Which is why some. DNA was preserved and some wasn't. It was very sort of slapdash. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. It is interesting to me that Peter Tobin has been conclusively ruled out mm-hmm. using DNA, but there's still so many who believe that it's him. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing too. It's like I think it's one of those cases that people are going to believe what they want to believe. Like there are people who <laughs> are always going to believe that Jack the Ripper was Prince Albert. Yep. But is or that, that it was actually likely? a Jill the Ripper? Yeah. Like are these theories likely or based in logic? Um, probably not. Maybe Peter Tobin as Bible John is a little less far fetched than you know. 
the most well-known man in the entire country and possibly yeah. in the world in some ways at that time. Uh, so yeah, it, this is one of those cases where someone's always going to be like, no, it had to be Peter Tobin. It had to be Angus Sinclair, mm -hmm. which I think has probably led to more logical suspects kind of sliding away. Yeah. From the public consciousness. Yeah, I definitely agree. I hope he's found and I hope even like he's going to be in his 70s at the very least. Yeah. So, but I still hope. Yeah. That he is found and even if it's like two years in prison before he, you know, pops off down to hell, I hope that he is found. Yeah. So, in conclusion, yeah, we, we have once again solved nothing. We didn't solve it. Go figure. <laughs> Scotland's most infamous serial killing, unsolved serial killing. Uh, I'm shocked that we didn't solve it. Um, I know, right? And And hey, guys, most of you don't know this, but we've done this case before. Yeah, we did. Uh, Bible John was our first ten-pound Patreon the bonus mother episode. Tier. Yeah, the tier that only our mothers ever signed up for, so we got rid of it. Yeah, because <laughs> it was silly. Yeah, so we actually talked about this case a long, nearly long two years ago. ago. Yeah, but it is definitely a case that has been sort of in the back of our minds as we've gone through all of the episodes yeah. that we've done and obviously is very close to the heart of Glasgow and the history of the city. So yeah. it is definitely interesting to us. Yeah. I definitely recommend the BBC uh, documentary. It's a two-parter. It's called The Hunt for Bible John. Yeah. Don't I'll, know where you can get it outside of the UK, but I'll take a, a look. Yeah, I found a, I put a link to iPlayer mm -hmm. in the show notes so you can get it in the UK. Um, but as well as having like all the archive footage of 1960s Glasgow, it does sort of show you the or go into detail about like the attitudes of the press because of like the culture of violence in the yeah. 1960s and how this these murders cast a shadow over Glasgow for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I haven't seen it, so I'm interested to watch it because, yeah, like, as much as I've heard and read about this case, I don't think I've ever watched anything about it, so. Yeah, I think I've mostly watched a lot of things on YouTube because there isn't that many documentaries about it. Yeah, because so. there's not a lot to go on. No. Despite the fact that we just recorded for three hours about it. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um. So yeah. So we'll yeah we'll include links to a bunch of stuff in the show notes if you're interested in um, reading more about the case, reading more about any of the suspects we've mentioned, and. Uh, any that we haven't mentioned yeah. um because there as you as you know as we said there are plenty 
Um, and yeah, that's the hundredth episode, guys. Uh oh, cat just froze. There she's back. You oh. froze. <laughs> oh, I think you froze. Well, um, I think you froze. And hey, because it's our hundredth episode, uh, it's celebration. I know you are all just begging for it. You like just couldn't stop bugging us. Being like, please reopen the merch shop. This is a lie. Nobody has said anything. Nobody even noticed that it was gone. But it's fine. We love you anyway. Um, <laughs> we're going to reopen our merch shop with new designs. <laughs> because yeah. the designs we had, one was about like episode four. <laughs> talking about early episodes. Yeah. Uh, one was about the Glasgow Square Mile of Murder, but it's been 60 episodes since we talked about any of those. So yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're just, we wanted to simplify everything, come up with a few new designs, see if you like any of those. And, um, and if you do, you can go get a t-shirt or a mug or something with those designs on them. And if you don't, you don't have to do that. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, but if there are any strange things that we've said, things that we've mentioned that just stick in your mind and you're like, I want that on a tote bag, let us know, because we could make that happen for you. Yeah. Um, because, like, if you don't tell us what you find interesting that we, you know put forth in this here audio broadcast uh we're just kind of guessing blind when it comes to to making this sort of thing so if yeah. you really want a pair of sweatpants with the square mile of murder cone logo across the butt <laughs> we can do that I mean, like wouldn't? i wouldn't recommend it but we can do it for you. So I mean, there are worse places on sweatpants to put a cone. A cone. <laughs> Look, you know, you do you. But input is good. So if you have ideas, if you have suggestions, let us know. You will be credited for such ideas um, in whatever way we possibly can. And yeah. So, um... We'll send you a sticker. Yeah, we will send you a sticker. We have cool stickers, guys. We do. Um, and, yeah, uh, what... I was going to say, what designs do we have so far? Well... Uh. <laughs> we, we have, um... Uh, we're going to put a little very... Not, not the cone logo... Uh, a la juicy sweatpants. <laughs> Not that, but like a very tasteful, like small chest uh, print of the classic podcast logo. Um, that's going to be a thing. And uh, we've got, of course, although we didn't, we didn't, uh, we didn't mention him in this episode, but uh, our good friend Sonny Bean. Yeah, is going to get a design because 
He is the the Scottish cannibal that everybody loves to love, and um, um, all all roads lead to Sawney Bean. Yeah, it's true. Like literally, uh, like our lives have just become a, a tribute band to Sawney Bean in so many ways. After <laughs> first talking about him, so uh, he's going to be in there somewhere because he is literally the most mentioned criminal, fictional, or otherwise to ever appear on this show. So, um. Yeah. Kind of like um, the third co-host, if you will. Yeah, and um, hysterical women everywhere. We have a t-shirt for you. <laughs> and if you are not a woman, but you're still hysterical, we also have one for you. Because I thought it was a good idea after the Death by Chocolate episode. That's what it was. I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't remember what. <laughs> yeah, episode because it was. we said that pretty much everything. Every symptom of like his female hysteria, we're like every woman we know has that. Literally every human, like you could be deemed hysterical for like sneezing. Yeah, like there is no winning. So yeah, our our hysteria T-shirt designs as well. Um. So if you want to check out any of these things, um, or you want to check out the shop. And you're looking at it and you're like, they should have this. Um, you can do that by going to squaremilemurder.store. And um, yeah, it'll it'll be there. Yeah. Uh, if you're still with us, thank you so God, much God bless for you. listening. <laughs> um, and we also have a special thank you shout out to our newest patron, Lisa. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Hi, um, Lisa. I just waved at you, Lisa, but you couldn't see that because this is an audio show and you think I would have uh, learned that 100 episodes in, but here we are. So, yeah, thank you for joining the patron. Yeah. Uh, Patreon, uh, Lisa. Uh, if you too would like to help us cover the costs of making the podcast and help us invest in the future of the show... Our production company, our 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 uh, our our book imprint, Blue Men of the Minch. Um, yeah, our um, our trip to the Spy Museum <laughs> in Berlin, our trip to Bletchley Park, uh, in Milton Keynes. Not quite our, as exotic. Our our code breaking course at, at Bletchley yeah. Park. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, if you'd like to help us achieve all of these goals... All of this you, nonsense. <laughs> you can join our Patreon page too. Tiers start from just £1 per month. Every patron gets regular episodes one day early. A shout-out on the show, priority case requests, and a lifetime discount on merch. Because the merch shop's Because we have merch. Uh, and that's just for £1 a month. As the tiers go up, you get even more, including bonus episodes and exclusive stationary merch that you can't buy anywhere. So check all that out at patreon.com forward slash square mile of murder. Links are in all the usual places. And we will be back very soon. Yeah. But yeah, thank you all for listening. Thank you for 100 episodes. Um, and And, you know... We'll see you around. Yeah. See you later. Bye. Bye.